It's difficult to get through life and not be affected by cancer. Whether you hear the words, you have cancer, or someone you know, cancer is part of us all. When confronted, where do you turn? What are the treatment options? What happens next? C-Sessions with Randall Broad seeks to answer the questions with patients, physicians, providers, policy experts, and key individuals skilled in providing answers. In the process, C-Sessions improves communication on both sides of the stethoscope. I'm Randall Broad. I'm the host of C-Sessions. Thank you for joining us today. I've got the delight in having two distinguished guests, Pat Garcia-Gonzalez of the Max Foundation. She is the CEO. She's going to share her story and all about the Max Foundation, how it got started, how it evolved, and where it is today. And joining us well is Jerry Radich from the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center here in Seattle. He's going to share some of the support that they've been providing to the Max Foundation. In fact, Jerry, if you recall, was on one of the previous programs talking about some of his work as a researcher in the cancer treatment field. He has been working with Pat for quite some time. So we're looking forward to hearing, and he's got a part here called Bot On. We're going to hear more about that. Jerry. So I guess before we start, one quick question. Sure. <laughs> How many people tell you you look like Sam Elliott? Uh, a lot. <laughs> In fact, I was <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was at a restaurant. The table next to me you know, said I was Sam Elliott. I said, no, I'm really not. And they got mad because they thought I was like lying. Had to take out my wallet and show my ID. <laughs> you say that, well, Catherine Ross is in the bathroom right now. She'll be out any time now. <laughs> Pat, hola. Hola, Randy. How are you? Bien, bien. Y tú? <laughs> oh, this is in Spanish. Okay. Uh, poquito. Give us a little bit of an overview of the Max Foundation. Thank you so much for having me. The Max Foundation is a Seattle-based organization committed to increasing health equity globally, one patient at a time. We facilitate access to cancer treatment to patients that otherwise would not have this access. And literally, we work patient by patient, identifying people who need a certain treatment and who otherwise would go without. And we make sure that we bring that treatment to that patient no matter where they are in 70 different countries around the world, working in partnership with about 500 hematologists and oncologists, all from our small office here in Seattle. Wow. That sounds like a challenging day at the office. Jerry was the one that actually introduced me to you in the first place. And then when we first spoke, I was absolutely blown away. And that's why we're having this podcast because more people need to know about this. This is an unbelievable undertaking. How did the Max Foundation get started? Yeah, the Max Foundation got started about 23 years ago as a very small grassroots organization founded in the memory of Max. Max was my stepson. He was diagnosed with a rare type of leukemia called chronic myeloid leukemia. People sometimes call it CML. And he was 14 in 1988. It was a pretty devastating diagnosis. At the time, there were no really great treatments. And we were told if we were lucky, we would find a matching bone marrow donor. And if we were even luckier, he would survive the transplant. But 
We never found a matching donor for Max. He passed away when he was 17 in 1991. You know, 30 years ago. This was not only before the great treatments we have today, but before the internet. It was a very different time. At the end of our journey, we were not able to save Max, but we had learned so much. We had found so many resources along the way. And we realized that even though sometimes there's no good outcomes, that there are resources out there and that people just don't know about them. So we started the Max Foundation to be a bridge between resources and patients. We were very sure that the one thing we didn't want to do was to duplicate anything anybody else was doing. So we committed ourselves to helping those that no one else is helping. And we really started with an email address, help at the maxfoundation.org, not knowing what to expect. And from day one, we started receiving desperate emails from not only from Latin America, but from all over the world, from people that were in a very similar situation where they had a loved one who was diagnosed with some cancer and were told they needed a treatment and the treatment was not available where they lived and they were trying to get help. And so we really started connecting patients with resources for their specific situation. In those early days, without the internet, how did they find you? We started the Max Foundation six years after Max passed when the concept of a website started. So we created Uh a first website with information. Before that, it was very difficult to, to know any resources. But when somebody explained to me the concept of a website, you put all this information in your computer at home and instantaneously everybody can have it. It was such a revolutionary thought at the time, we realized it would have been so great for us to be able to find all these resources before when Max was diagnosed. So that's how the Max Foundation started with little website, email address, and a real deep commitment to doing everything we can to bring cancer treatment to patients. Still amazing. I come across even today with a lot of patients that don't know where to go to find information. It had to be some kind of outreach on your end to these providers. Give us a little bit of a backstory on that. When the Max Foundation started, the big thing was the listservs. We had listservs of people that were interested in finding resources for a certain disease. So, so we were very plugged into the listserv for leukemia and other cancers. And that's how we met one of our first board members and volunteers who was some, a friend who had been diagnosed with CML, had had a bone marrow transplant at the Hutch. His doctor was Jerry Radish, and he was very committed to helping us. So those days, he was very computer savvy, and so he would come and fix our computers and help us in any way he could. But all the while, he kept saying to me, you have to meet Jerry Radish. You have to meet Jerry Radish. He's the best doctor. 20 years later, here we are with his help, not only bringing treatment to patients around the world, but helping diagnose them. With that lead in, Jerry, tell me how this all evolved on your end. In a characteristic fashion, Pat is uh, completely underselling what a Herculean effort she did to get this going. You can imagine starting from scratch, you know, CML used to be a fatal disease with an average lifespan around seven years. There came around the time of starting up to a called uh, imatinib, which is a pill you can take once a day that really changes the life expectancy to near normal. 
Pat can tell the backstory on this, but she basically managed to convince one of these companies to, to work with her so that she could diagnose a, a patient. And, and that's kind of where I came in because I was doing a lot of molecular diagnostics in CML, which is why her friend that she mentioned that I transplanted knew that I did that kind of stuff. Pat reached out and basically said, if we can get blood on patients that we think have CML, could you actually diagnose them? And so I said, yeah, sure. We started doing that in the lab. I believe it was patients from El Salvador, as I remember, started and got up to maybe 100 patients from El Salvador. And then we tried to think about some ways to outsource this to other countries. But the actual technology, the, the, the nuts and bolts of how you do these assays is pretty labor intensive and, and machine intensive. And we just couldn't graft a lab in El Salvador or Guatemala, et cetera, et cetera. So as happenstance happened, there was a company in the Bay Area called Cepheid, which started off as a bioterrorism diagnostic company. Uh, most of the mail that is, goes in the U.S. is tested for anthrax via their technology, which is essentially a cartridge. So you need very little technical support. You can basically take your ingredient, blood, urine, whatever, put it in this cartridge, and it will test for the nucleic acid that you, of the target you're interested in. And another twist of faith, just like our friend that Pat and I together is, um, one of the major engineers on that company, his wife was coming to UW to do a, a doctoral, and he didn't have a, a job. So Sefi had employed him in my lab, and we developed this cartridge that we could get out into the world. Now I think that, I would agree, that was kind of a game changer, because the WHO were putting machines to do TB and HIV testing around the developing world that use these cartridges and you could plug in the same cartridge for a CML diagnosis and diagnose people you know, easily offsite. So there, so then we had two ways to diagnose people, either them coming to a central lab with their blood or if they lived in an area that had these cartridges for TB and HIV diagnosis, they could use them there. So that was sort of a, a huge change, I think, in how we could do this. I'm going to echo what you just said there at the beginning, Jerry, as far as this is a monumental effort just by me listening to this story. It's mind-boggling that, Pat, you've been able to pull this off as quickly as you have, even though it's been a couple of decades. I mean, the logistics of this has to be enormous. I have a background doing logistics, so I understand all the moving parts. 70 countries, hundreds of thousands of patients. Currently, we have... 30,000 patients actively receiving treatment. 30,000. How many have you treated over the years? About 100,000. How did you begin to pull this off? I'm guessing you're working with lots of different providers in lots of different countries. So let me tell you the missing piece of the story, right? So we started as this really grassroots organization, just trying to help any patient that was asking us for help. And we really came of age as an organization in 2001, when the nature of this disease, chronic myeloid leukemia, was changed by the development of this really amazing treatment that's called imatinib, that turned the disease into a situation we had with Max to a disease in which you can live for decades, as long as you take a pill every day. So imatinib is, a, is an oral targeted cancer medicine. And as long as patients take this treatment, orally every day, they live for many, many years with cancer. So you, in so, essence, turned it into a chronic disease? The drug did that. Yes. Um, and we entered into a partnership with a company that made the drug at the time in 2001 
to make sure that patients in countries where they were not going to commercialize a drug, it was 80 countries around the world, could have access to it. And so our role was to identify a patient to make sure that they actually were properly diagnosed and properly treated by a physician to let the company know to send treatment to that hospital for that patient. So this was a new model. This is 2001. They said, do you think you can do this? And of course we said yes, because the idea of what the possibility of helping so many patients and by then, we were a small group of volunteers. We had started to identify people that were trying to help people in countries. So we were contacted by different volunteers in different countries that said, I know a person and I'm just trying to help them. And so we formed this network of what we called Max Stations around the world, helping us communicate with patients and physicians. And we started this partnership really with nothing but extremely committed and we we increase our team to let's say 10 people in the, my office in Seattle but extremely committed extremely smart and knowing that the possibility to develop the systems to reach these patients was an amazing opportunity so we ended up doing that for 15 years we we went from having no systems to developing this really smart web-based software that helps us track the treatment of each patient. Because the challenge of this story is not just to get the drug to the patient, is that you have to make sure every patient, whatever remote place in the world they are, have access to constant treatment and never stop the treatment in between. So you have to make sure that you continue to supply every hospital. Until 2015, we were not doing the drug distribution. So the company was doing the drug distribution. We were doing all the tracking of each patient's treatment with their physician. And then, but by, by 2015, other treatments had come into the market for CML. Some patients were resistant to this drug imatinib and there were sort of better treatments developed. The imatinib also treats a different type of cancer called gastrointestinal stromal tumor, which is a rare cancer. So we were helping those patients as well and other treatments were coming to the market for that disease as well. When our patients needed these treatments, there was no system in place to, to help them. We realized that we needed help from more than one company. And so that we needed to make sure that we could work with many companies at the same time, which meant that we needed now to be the ones receiving and distributing the medicines. Let me tell you one more part of the story. We had an experience trying to help a dear patient friend of ours in Sudan uh, that needed a different drug and the company was trying to help them and they couldn't figure out how to get the drug to Sudan and our friend passed away. So we decided that we needed to change what was happening and we started a little pilot program for 30 patients. We said to this company, we can do this. We know we can do this. Let us help 30 patients and show you that we can distribute drugs around the world. And we did this to, with 30 patients. And to make a little bit of a long story short, 
we ended up deciding that all these other thousands of patients that were being helped in imatinib, it was best to transition them to our program. And that is the question that people say to me, how did I know that because we had helped 30 patients, we could help 30,000? I was so sure we could do this. And it's because, first of all, we have the most dedicated team around the world. At about 20,000 people now? There's 16 of us in the U.S. and there's about 50 of us in different countries around the world. So we're like 65 people total. We have the most dedicated team. And I knew that if I told them, look, we can bring the drugs to these patients, they would figure out how to do it. And then the second one is because I knew that we had developed this system called PATS system, patient assistant tracking system, that if we could track this, the treatment of thousands of patients at a time, we could also use this system to track different shipments of drug around the world. On that conviction, we launched into this new phase of the Max Foundation in the last five years. And we now are working with five different companies to, that provide their products to us. We have a portfolio of nine really effective treatments. And so not only we have treatment for CML and for GIST, but we have some drugs for renal cell carcinoma. We have some targeted therapy for lung cancer, and we're sort of building our portfolio. It's an amazing story of scaling. How did you scale this up as fast as you did? Again, with not a whole lot of resources and not a lot of people, other than your key partnerships, which obviously should not go unnoticed. Can you share who some of these partnerships are? The maker of Imatinib is Nobardis, and they were the ones that committed to helping patients around the world with access to their drug. The brand name is Gleevec. The companies that joined were Pfizer, Bristol-Myers-Squibb, Takeda, and Insight. We also, as Jerry has said, now we have a relationship with Cepheid that also provides not only preferential pricing for their, for their diagnostics, but a certain amount of donated diagnostics to us. And we work, our implementing partners, of course, are very important. First of all, we have a partner international distributor. We knew enough uh, to know that we shouldn't do this by ourselves when we decided to distribute drugs around the world. I think we didn't know enough to know how complicated it is. We decided to partner with uh, Tanner Pharma, that's an international distributor. So when we request drugs from our donor partners, they are delivered to the Tanner Pharma warehouse, and then we work with them and our physicians to figure out how much we need to send when to what country. I'm going to guess not every one of these people have the ability to pay for these drugs. How do the economics of this work? So the drugs are donated by the donor partners. Donated? Yeah. How did you pull that off? We call it a humanitarian pact. I believe that, especially in global oncology, there is so much work to be done until the day that we can treat every single cancer patient around the world. Yeah. However, it's going to take a long time, a lot of money, and a lot of effort. Yes. In the meantime, there are patients we can save today. Yep. And we can safely treat them. And to the extent that we can, I believe we should. Yeah. When you approach these industry partners, 
did they just automatically say, yeah, we'll be happy to donate these drugs for no cost? I will tell you, a few years ago, I was trying to convince Jerry to do something for me. <laughs> I was going to tell that story, but you go ahead. <laughs> I said to him, Jerry, don't say yes to me if you don't mean it, but you're not allowed to say no. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. <enough. laughs> that is my approach. I mean, we have been... To, to be honest, the Novartis was very committed to patients they, from the beginning. First of all, show the companies that we can do this safely, that we control where the drug goes from end to end. From the manufacturer, we, tra we trace that one bottle of treatment all the way to a patient. So we have really good controls. We do call it a humanitarian pact. We do this because we can, because we can save people's lives. And we are also very good at showing them the impact of their work. These are lives. These are real people. We know them. The, the program goes well beyond helping that one patient when you save somebody's life. I'm going to say this again. This is just an amazing story. I've never heard a story quite like this. A lot of my work, I've worked with quite a few pharmas and a lot of times they get a pretty bad rap because they're quote unquote out there to just make a lot of money off of sick people. At least that's what you hear. In fact, I remember one of my contacts, he goes, if I go to a cocktail party, I'm pretty much deemed Darth Vader. Interesting that you would have to be struggling with that. This is just an amazing story of industry support to help people in need around the world. Why don't we see this on NBC Nightly News? Yes. So, so you, you've made a lot of references to how complicated it is and how small we are and how could we possibly be doing this. And so the other side of that is that we haven't really spent any time out there telling people what we're doing because we're really busy trying to help the next patient. That's why I'm here. We're going to lift the kimono today and we're going to make sure that there's more people out there that know what you are doing because this is absolutely Phenomenal. Do you ever mentor other organizations like yourself? The work that we have done is actually over the years with patients in many countries who were helped by our organization and who decided that they need to dedicate the rest of their life to give back to their communities. So we have for the past decade helped them start patient organizations in their own countries and we work with them to provide education and support and, and really a safe haven for patients. Many countries, cancer has a big stigma. People not only suffer with the diagnosis and trying to have access to treatment, but they cannot tell their employer that they're sick. In many right. cases, they don't tell their family that they're sick. Mm. So the power of patient organizations where people can go to a patient meeting and it's the only place where they feel that somebody understands what they go through. We have helped start about 30 patient organizations. These organizations in India, the organization is called Friends of Max. In the Philippines, they call themselves Touched by Max. Malaysia, they call Max Family. So we have all these really awesome local patient organizations that we partner with. The work that we do with them is as important as bringing the drug to patients. You're partnering with Fred Hutch via Jerry. Is there any other research laboratories or anything along those lines that you are partnering with as well? Yes. A lot of the academic centers in the U.S. have some kind of global oncology program. 
So in Rwanda, for instance, we partner with partners in health, people at UPenn to help patients actually in Rwanda and in Haiti. Then in other sites, you know, because we work with all the cancer hospitals in the developing world. We actually have 200, it just seems like a a big number, 200 hospitals that we're working with in all these countries. I want to talk about the technology behind all this a little bit, because obviously that's got to play big in order for you to connect the dots and keep everything together. What's your software platform? Okay, so I am a user of the platform, but I will in the future can introduce you to our data solutions senior director, who is an amazing guy who came to work with us 17 years ago, right out of college at age 23, super smart. He could be working for any of the technology companies, but he again is very mission driven. And so I believe he, we use the Azure okay. uh, platform. Does that make any sense? Yes. And so we have a web-based system where our physicians can log in and our team can log in and we track, it's like, it's like a little, f- not Facebook page, but every patient has their own page. We really track the treatment plan for every patient with their prescription, and that allows us to do some planning and forecasting on how much treatment are we going to need at each site. Just to tell you one more thing that's going to blow your mind, when we ask the company every month for a certain amount of drug, we have five months of lead time. So today we have to order whatever drug we're going to need five months from now at each site. So it's quite a complicated system. Like I said, we understand what can be achieved if we do it. We have very dedicated partners. I do want to speak just a little bit about our physician partners. Okay. I think they're the most important partner that we have. These are the leading hematologists and oncologists in many of the developing countries. I think that the story that's not often talked about, somebody mentioned to me the HOPE index. I believe the biggest impact for the physicians that are involved in this program is giving them hope that they're helping somebody successfully. Because if you are a hematologist working in a cancer center in in a low-income country, for the most part, you are not able to treat successfully any patient. And so can you imagine a career of working where you don't have the tools to successfully treat any of your patients from children to to young people to adults? And so the only patients that they see doing well and surviving are our patients. And so their commitment, their dedication, and what it means to them personally to be involved in this program I think is a very big piece of why this works. Because we ask a lot from them. Not only we're asking them to give us information about every patient, every three months, they have to tell us again, but they help to provide clear the documents that they need for every shipment that we send. We have to get import permits and all sorts of documentation. And these physicians, the guy that's usually the one hematology in this whole country is also the one that's going to the health authorities to try to get the approval for the import permit that goes to the airport to clear customs of the shipment. And that keeps the drug that we send in a very special place 
with lots of controls because they are so grateful to be able to be part of this. Man, you have so many moving parts. And to your point, yes, we're going to have to have at least one, maybe two, possibly three more podcasts because there's a lot of information here to cover. All of it is it's mind-boggling. I, I'm I'm absolutely blown away. Pat or Jerry, either one or both. What's next? Jerry, when we spoke before, you were saying how the world of oncology is going to be a completely different world five years from now. Pat, where do you see five years from now? You know, 10 years ago, if you would ask me the question of what what would be my dream, it was not even what is my goal, but my dream. And you would ask anyone working at the Max Foundation, what is your dream? Our dream was that if one of our patients needed other treatments, we could give it to them. And I am sitting here today and can tell you that if you're diagnosed with CML in a low-income country today, you can have access to any and all of the available treatments, and you can have access to the diagnostics. And we have really eradicated any divide between the survival in, let's say, a country like Cambodia and the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that was our dream. So now I have a new dream, which I hope to achieve in less than 10 years. I think that for any new treatment for cancer that is developed, to the extent that there are patients that can be safely treated in countries where these drugs are not being registered. I expect that every pharmaceutical company should work with us and save the lives of those patients. That's a big goal. Man, you're giving me goosebumps. How does somebody support you? How does anybody get a hold of you? And I mean, I never had heard of you and I live in Seattle and it was my connection here with Jerry that I found out about you. And I'm just blown away by this. Yeah. Thank you for the question. It takes, as you are saying, it takes resources to get these drugs to patients, to make sure patients are taking their drugs. For every little bit of resources that we, that we have, we can help another patient. It takes about a dollar a day per patient, a dollar a day to make sure that they take that dose of treatment. The more resources we have, the more patients we can help. We, can, we have patients in some countries that we haven't been able to reach because we don't have the resources. So that is our priority. We're currently trying to help patients in Yemen. We haven't reached Yemen with all the challenges that they have. How you help the Max Foundation, if I can have a wish, come see our website our website is themaxfoundation.org, T-H-E-M-A-X Foundation. Uh, we have an upcoming gala. If you want to learn more about the Max Foundation, March 26th, given the COVID world we live in, our gala is virtual. Is there anybody that we should know that's going to be part of that gala that you want to share? Sure. We have a dear friend, Princess Dina Mired of Jordan, her son is a cancer survivor. She has an amazing story. Her son was diagnosed with leukemia when he was two, and she ended up coming to the U.S., and he was treated successfully in the U.S., and then realized that other children in Jordan didn't have uh, the same opportunities. So she worked really hard with the King Hussein Cancer Foundation, and so she's going to be a guest speaker. And you're also going to meet some of our dear collaborators and team members from around the world. So it'll be really like going in a trip, 
from the safety of your home during COVID. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Randy, just to emphasize to the people who might be interested in supporting the Max Foundation, how the dividend that you get out of it, I once did a back of the envelope calculation, kind of looking on the diagnostics and, and saying like, for every dollar you would spend diagnosing a patient, how many dollars of drug would this person be getting? And it's like $10,000 per $1. So the, the yield, and then, yeah. no, it's mind boggling. And you really, as Pat said, when we, when we looked at the data, patients that we diagnose and that Pat treats with her program, they have the same lifespan as someone in CML in Seattle. That's just unbelievable. When yeah. we first saw those curves, I almost fainted. No, I'm absolutely blown away by everything I've heard here today. And you mentioned CML, GIST, RCC. Is it non-small cell lung cancer or just lung cancer? I'm guessing on your horizon, you're going to be looking at a few other cancers as well. Is that a safe bet? Yeah, definitely. We are actually this year looking at our five-year strategic plan to figure out where are the best opportunities for us to make an impact there's also the whole area of rare diseases. As you know, there's about 4,000 different rare diseases, right. and some of them, there are really great treatments. So we look for a treatments that can really improve the quality of life and the, the life of patients, and where are those opportunities? We have put the system in place, like you say. We've developed the supply chains into these 200 different hospitals. So what else can we do? What other drugs? What other supportive care drugs can we bring through through that? I think they we're just getting started. One thing, Jerry, you know, you I want to go back here for just a little bit. I wanted you to share. I didn't hear you use the word spot on. So, so we talked about the, the various layers of uh, diagnostics. So one is that you can have blood shipped from uh, any country to a central lab, you know, my lab, some other lab. The next better thing is to have these cartridges that Stephanie has, but there's a lot of places in the world that don't have access to those machines. And to send a, a tube of blood from Africa to Seattle costs 500 bucks. So it's not sustainable in any way, shape or form. So we spent some time and figured out a way that you, where you could actually take blood from a patient, put it on a special type of paper, and that is stable for weeks, months. And so you could then a physician, uh, you know, in, in Uganda, uh, they, one of the centers does this for us, they'll collect patients over a week and send them, they can send them by snail mail. And you can go from like 500 bucks for one sample to two bucks for 50 samples. And then we do the assay um, based on uh, when it gets here. Um, so we're, we've done now a couple of years with the support of, of Max and the Hutch and the International Student Health Foundation. Um, we've done upwards of 800 newly diagnosed cases from about 40 countries. You know, this is the most rewarding work I've ever done. And for the lab as well, because, you know, most of the time the lab is pursuing weird ideas that I have that are fairly esoteric. Um, and we hope will help patients someday, but it's a long horizon where this is something where they can do the work and they've basically given the kind of the gift of life immediate gratification. And they diagnose someone ask them to get them drugs, they're going to live a full life. So that's just fantastically uh, fulfilling to people in the lab. But where we're going next on this, you're saying like the five-year dream plan, we're developing diagnostics now that will be able, I think, we think that we'll be able to do at point of care without electricity. For a lot of these places, you'll be able to do a diagnosis at a clinic, at a patient's house, whatever, without actually even having to send a sample. So that's the 
what we're working on now. And if I can say, because you cannot underestimate the importance of diagnostics right now in oncology. Oh, correct. You know, yeah. we are developing these amazing treatments, but to the extent that we are not able to diagnose patients in many regions of the world, the so-called cancer divide is getting wider and wider. Mm -hmm. And access to diagnostics is the biggest barrier of all the resources we have, every single penny we have we invest in diagnosis mm. because without it, doesn't matter if we have the treatments, if we cannot get people diagnosed. Do I have time to tell you a story? <laughs> yes, of course you do. <laughs> it is amazing for us to, to partner with Cherry and he's somebody, every time I have a problem I'm trying to solve, I go sit in his office. Now with COVID, I haven't been uh, to his office, but we sit there and he offers me an espresso and, and he tells me how he's going to solve my problem. But in, in uh, 2017, one of my colleagues went to visit the hospital that we partner with in Tajikistan. And when she arrived and met the physician, she was faced with actually five or six patients in front of her walking around with these visibly big spleens with untreated CML and asking her for help. These patients did not have money to get on a plane to go to Russia to get diagnosed so they can actually be properly diagnosed and get in, into our program. And so as soon as she came back and told me that story, we both rushed to the hutch and sat in front of Jerry and told him what was happening. And that was the day that we envisioned the spot on CML that he, he had figured out how to put blood in these little cards and ship it. And so that year, in the next few months, we diagnosed about 40 patients in Tajikistan that were waiting and otherwise would have waited in, in excruciating pain for so many mm. years unnecessarily. I think we'll call it a session. This has just been amazing, both of you. My eyes have just been opened like they haven't been in a while. So I am looking forward to spreading the word, getting this out, making sure that everybody knows who the Max Foundation is. We're going to leave no stone unturned to try to make sure that happens. But this has been amazing. I know I've used that word about 14 times in this conversation, but you blew my mind. I want to thank you both very much. I want to thank Jerry for making this introduction, Pat, Thanks. you for being here. And with that, this has been another C Sessions. Again, I'm your host, Randy Broad, and we look forward to a future session with Pat Garcia Gonzalez and all of her acquaintances. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, Pat. Thank you for listening to C-Sessions. If you love this podcast, please give us a five-star rating. That helps us get seen. Share with your friends, family, coworkers, anybody who might be affected by cancer, which, as we know, is actually everybody. Thank you for rating and sharing this podcast.